This is the Nietzsche Podcast. The following is a Q&A that I did a couple months ago for the patrons. So it's an episode where I'm answering the patrons' questions that I've decided to finally make available to the public for general listening. So without further ado, enjoy Q&A number two of the Nietzsche podcast. Question and answer time. Uh couple notes really quick. Uh, first of all, I've only looked through these once, um, kind of thought about them over the past couple days, but I didn't bring any notes. Uh, I'm just going to kind of go uh, off the cuff and go down the list of questions and uh, give you my answers. Uh, at least some some number of patrons um, ask for anonymity, so uh, with their questions, I will not say their name uh, or even their username because, you know, uh, just... This episode will eventually be released to the general public, so that's that. Anyway, uh, let's um, go down the list and see what you had to ask. First question, what are some things you dislike about Nietzsche's writing? Hmm. So I, I think that he makes too many exclamatory remarks I don't have a problem with like his sort of declarative exclamatory remarks, but sometimes he can get, um, he can, can, he can stack one too many in a row. <laughs> and so, um, that's the kind of thing, uh, that I don't like. Also, he, maybe another thing that I have sort of a love hate relationship with is, um, the way he sort of bombards you with questions and beyond good and evil, especially a lot of the early aphorisms he asks question after question after question um each sort of building on each other and it's almost a little bit too much um now i understand that i guess in the grand scheme of things i i don't dislike it because i think stylistically what nietzsche's doing there is like browbeating you and i think that's intentional it's supposed to produce that effect but it's not always pleasant for me to reread <laughs> but um I don't know. I, Nietzsche's pace is very interesting. He, um, it's a very living, flowing pace. You, or pace. You can feel that he is um, caught up in his thoughts, right? That's each of these aphorisms or each of the numbered sections that feels like, um, I don't know. He each each sentence sort of is carrying him along, right? So that's actually something I like about Nietzsche's style. That's not something I dislike, but I think, I think as a result of that, occasionally Nietzsche can be going at a pace that is um, maybe unexpected for the reader, and suddenly you're getting hit with a bunch of these exclamatory statements. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think y'all know what I mean. Next question: What do you make of Nietzsche's recommendation to suffer? How much should we suffer? What is the limit? Is all suffering useful? Should we cause others to suffer to help them evolve? So what we're, we're referring to here, statements like one of the most famous statements of Nietzsche, that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger, which um, I will try to find the YouTube link and put it here. There's a compilation of all the times that's been used in popular music. It's 
one of the biggest cliches. Um, but Nietzsche wrote it, and he also wrote, um, you know, build your temples in the slopes of Mount Vesuvius, live dangerously. But I think maybe what uh, this question is mostly referring to are not just those sort of descriptive um, statements, because that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. I'm using that really simple formulation because it's easy to get, it's better to keep this simple. Um, that's still a descriptive statement. It's not necessarily normative, right? Now, you can say in some sense when Nietzsche's talking about life and will to power, there are some statements that, that where the ought and is intersect with Nietzsche. But I think in general, he is writing in a more, he's thinking in a more descriptive fashion. And, but nevertheless, uh, I believe it's in his notes where he wrote, you know, to those people who are of any interest to me, I wish nothing but suffering. Um, catastrophe, self for them to know the deepest self recrimination and doubt and um, you know pain of all kinds and all of these things. And so yeah, he thinks that um, through people who have the potential for greatness, through great adversity, that greatness can be brought out. Um, it's sort of like saying it's it's epigenetics, right? And I mean we have a lot of look. This is this is sort of the the issue I'd have with this question because I I think what it makes it seem like with the last question you're asking should we cause others to suffer to help them evolve or like even to ask what is the limit is all suffering useful um, I guess those are useful questions to ask but saying somebody who would say well we should cause others to suffer to help them evolve then you're moving into making a, a normative statement and it's the kind of statement that I don't think Nietzsche would necessarily agree with for a number of reasons. But I would just say before elaborating further, Nietzsche's idea of, you know, um, human beings needing suffering to bring out their inner potential greatness. That's not just like an abstract idea. I mean, we have a lot of um, good evidence at this point that human beings are anti-fragile, that we need that, um, you know, what that means is, you know, something that's fragile is something that when it, you apply force to it, it breaks, something that's resilient, you apply force to it, and it holds, right? So a fragile cup versus a resilient cup, but people are, human beings are anti-fragile, which means that the more adversity you expose us to, the more force you apply against us, um, the more adaptable human beings tend to become and uh, the more, you know, the tougher human beings tend to become. Um, that, that, I mean, you can look into like, I believe Jonathan Haidt has done some research on this. Um, yeah, that's, um, without going too much further into it, I mean, it, it just the idea that the idea that adverse adversity may, will improve you is a form of self-improvement, right? Um, we don't, I, I guess what I'm saying is like, we don't need to have the underlying connotation of like <laughs> Hellraiser. We're going to make other people suffer for their go own good because um, most of the mainstream sort of figures who would hold that this is a sort of basic descriptive truth of human nature don't tend to advocate that because that's, that isn't just that isn't that kind of ideology is not warranted by the simple fact that people are made better by suffering because maybe it's the case that 
when you impose it on them in a way that that person is going to feel unjust or an affront to their dignity, perhaps it doesn't make them better. And in fact, um, just thinking about it for the moment, uh, you know, right now, it occurs to me that Nietzsche doesn't think it makes people better necessarily because the origin of slave morality and resentment is people who deal with oppression or have their basically ability to discharge their strength, their power constricted and find themselves, you know, under the yoke of someone else. Um, that, that, and he describes that as the process that creates resentment, which is a psychological poison, which makes those people bitter and destructive and externally directed and unvirtuous, all these things and problems that are caused by suffering effectively. I mean, there's a, a passage where he talks about, in the geopolitical sense, war makes the victor stupid and the vanquished malicious. That's what you can say against war. But you can say in favor of war, all these other benefits, how it um, you know, serves to strengthen and ennoble and all of this. Um, so I, just in, in that, um, I'll, tr- I'll look up that uh, aphorism from human all to human and, and put it in the description, but that... I think encapsulates the fact that Nietzsche didn't have, he he wasn't trying to extrapolate from this descriptive principle into a normative principle that we should make people suffer because he sees, um, you know, in some cases suffering will make people malicious. It's not going to make them better, but um, nevertheless, there is this strengthening, hardening, toughening element of war and conflict and adversity. And so then we have to ask perhaps, perhaps that's something that has to just take its, natural course and be left to a natural process because everyone's going to suffer in their lives anyway. Um, you could also meaningfully ask the question, what can human beings really do to increase the sum total of suffering in the world? You know, like you think about all the suffering that's ever gone on through the history of nature and throughout time. Um, okay. Next question. This is from, uh, Craig Smith. Just wanted to say how much I enjoyed your most recent episodes. How much I look forward to going back over previous episodes. Keep up the good work. Look forward to engaging in dialogue. Um, Cool, thank you. More questions. These are anonymous. Do you think Nietzsche would be in favor of leveraging genetic engineering to increase the mental and physical capabilities of humans? Seems like this would align with the world's power and striving towards the ubermensch. What about artificial intelligence? That's a lot lot of questions uh, packed into those. Each one one of those questions is multiple questions in a sense. Um, I think in some level, Nietzsche would be in favor of genetic engineering um, because why? I don't don't see what the downside would be, you know, if, if, if you learn your child is going to be born disabled, but you can edit their genome so that that doesn't happen and they're born healthy, why wouldn't you do that? Or why wouldn't, if you can like edit people's genes so they don't have to die from muscular dystrophy or um, if you could eliminate cancer. I mean, there's so many things that you could do to make people stronger, fit or healthier. Um, but then that runs up against the question of basically what you asked earlier that, uh, what about the fact that they need suffering and adversity and aren't all of these improvements going to make them suffer less? And I mean, yeah, that's sort of the endless cycle, right? Um, weakness is recursive and strength is always fading away. Um, 
And so to the extent that we make ourselves more powerful and more well-adapted, in general, that's just going to make us more comfortable and more complacent. And then, um, I mean, just look at the situation in America where, you know, not to get into the, see this, like, nowadays, if I bring up anything in American history, I just have to you know, the carry out, like, we're not talking about any moral evaluation of how America was. But in general, if you lived out on the frontier, you had to be like a fiercely independent person. You were existing on your own or with a small band or with your family or with a caravan and no one's coming to rescue you if you, you know, get caught out in the wilderness and you run out of food and you're lost. Um, or, you know, if your harvest fails or whatever the case may be, um, you know, there's no running water or electricity or any of these things that we take for granted. And so that was always sort of like the American ethos, right? And that's where we find the justification for the American idea of independence. Now, you know, 150, 200 years later, um, I would say so such, such a vast majority of Americans that you could practically say all Americans have no connection whatsoever with that kind of like sense of actual independence. Right. And, um, you know, now we're one of the most like obese countries in the world. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, another example is, uh, like when, when Genghis Khan during the Mongol conquest of Northern China, when they first encountered the Chinese, the agrarian society who lived a relatively like comfortable existence compared to life on the steppe, um, they couldn't believe how just weak and, um, ineffective the the, the surf class of people were specifically because the serfs, I mean, they lived about like 40, 50 years. They had, you know, a lot of them died from their teeth or, you know, things like that. Um, and they were just eating a rice based diet mostly. Um, Mongols are having to hunt to survive, ride, you know, cultivating, riding, shooting, all that. I guess I've gone off on a huge tangent, but that's kind of what these episodes are for, right? Um, I, so how this relates to your questions, I guess I'm just saying, I think it's arrogance to think we're any different just because we have new technologies. Every technology that we adapt to make human life um, better it, it, we always end up tending in the direction of, of more contentment, making things easier on ourselves, right? And then eventually, eventually that system starts to break down or becomes vulnerable. And then when in, the external forces come in and it's people who are out on the frontier who don't have that comfort and contentment, it brings you down. And so that's a roundabout way of saying genetic engineering will not ultimately solve anything for humanity in terms of that endless cycle. Um, and artificial intelligence might even be the thing that quote unquote overthrows us. Right. Um, and I don't know. I, I would say that that does not, I don't think artificial intelligence is what Nietzsche's idea of the Ubermensch is because it's disembodied and um, inhuman. Um, I think more than likely if, if artificial intelligence overtakes humanity, that's like in every meaningful sense, just like the end of mankind and not really, uh, 
Um, I don't know. I, I personally would see that as sort of a tragic end to, to man, to the, the history of mankind. And maybe that just reveals more about me than it does about Nietzsche. Um, and, and the Ubermensch, I mean, I guess what's, what's clear in all of what I, what I'm saying is like, I, I ultimately think Nietzsche does not ever change from his non-progressive view of history. And I don't think he sees the Ubermensch as, um, in every meaningful sense, it's not actually like some future evolution, quote unquote, of humankind, not in the natural sense. Anyway, um, you can, it might be helpful to envision it that way just because that's the way we think in modern times. But really the Ubermensch is just sort of the next, it's a perfected mankind and therefore by that token, something beyond mankind. And so it's always, it's an ever receding ideal but like, and I need, I really need to do an episode on the Ubermensch, but it's going to be in the next season. Um, but just a short version is like the Ubermensch is the thing that's replacing God in Nietzsche's, he, he introduces this idea in, in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which is a work of fiction, basically. Um, I mean, and, and I understand it's basically just Nietzsche's philosophy, but he does give it in the form of this narrative of this character of Zarathustra. Uh, Nietzsche puts everything in the quotations of someone else. So uh, there, there is a self-aware sense that Nietzsche is authoring a fiction here, that he's authoring a myth, a mythology that, and this, this surrounds his, or, or surrounding this work is all of his concern with, you know, how the falseness of a judgment may not be, um, anything against the usefulness of a judgment, right? And so he, he's trying to, thus spoke Zarathustra as Nietzsche trying to address the problem that God is dead and the overman is the new thing that's going to make mankind strive and, and aspire. But just like God, it's a, it's a concept, it's an image, um, it's not the Ubermensch is not whatever whatever the next actual thing that mankind becomes, the Ubermensch is not actually that. The Ubermensch will the idea is that mankind is elevated through the perception of the image of the Overman, through the perception of the idea, I'm a bridge, not a goal. That I my purpose here is for my me to transform into something beyond myself or me to give rise to mankind becoming something beyond myself. And so that it's, this also relates to Nietzsche's notes where he says a doctrine is required for enlivening the strong and breaking the weak. So that's, that's book Zarathustra. That's his doctrine that was needed to enliven the strong and break and paralyze the weak. He says, um, is this prophet Zarathustra of eternal return and will to power in the Ubermensch. And these ideas all work together. Eternal return, non-progressive view of life and reality. It endlessly returns to this life, not, um, you know, you don't just, it doesn't just end when you die. You don't go to heaven and you don't repeat all these other different lives. It's always the same thing. So there's no progress, not for, not for the subject anyway, right? not on the subjective level for any individual subject, there's no progress. Um, 
So that, that refocuses you on your own life, right? That's eternal return. Then will to power, Nietzsche showing you what is valuable for life because will to power is the character of life. As Zarathustra says that life reveals to him, uh, I am that which overcomes itself. And I am the, I am will to power. It says that's another name. And then finally the Ubermensch. So understanding the Ubermensch in the light of those two things, um, the Ubermensch is not a future for man that we're going to progress to in time. It's an image for you to hold and for you to conceive of. And part of, part of the, the conception of the Ubermensch is that you can't, there's some element of mystery to it, right? Because there's always some element of mystery to what could be potentially greater than you. Because if you knew how it was that you could be made greater than you would be greater, right? And so the Ubermensch is always just over the horizon. And so that's what that's about is about chasing that horizon. Um, and so it's not, I don't associate the Ubermensch with artificial intelligence or some sort of biopolitical project to make people better through genetic engineering because it never gets there. Every conquest, every victory mankind has, every empire that rises, every state of stability that's created eventually um, decays and, and collapses. And more, the rise of artificial intelligence, whatever that might mean, like whether it's Skynet, Terminator, whatever, in that case, that's the end of mankind. I don't think that's, I don't think that's what Nietzsche is talking about, the Ubermensch, because it's disembodied intelligence. It's, um, it's calculating emotionless, um, I mean, I don't even know, I'm not even convinced that an intelligent code really has a self, that it's really having a subjective experience. It doesn't mean that it could, couldn't, you know, um, following some uh, contrived machine logic still oh, doesn't mean it couldn't overthrow mankind and kill us all. I mean, it's like a an actual virus doesn't um, have any concept of or any self awareness. It can still kill you. The same could be true of a hyper intelligent con computer virus. It doesn't have to be having the subjective experience to be dangerous. But I'm personally not convinced that artificial intelligence would be having a subjective experience. A lot of the things I'm saying here, I'm sure people will very um, staunchly disagree with. So I don't know. Be interested to hear what all of you think. Okay, moving on. Robert Sullivan. I've always been fascinated by Nietzsche's statement claiming mankind will go insane when they realize God is dead. 20th century wars and death cult political regimes have borne this out. Nietzsche was clearly fearing what would replace the comforts of the ancient metaphysics. You see the unfolding of 21st century insanity, the effects of the death of God and the end of the belief in a metaphysical world will roll on to possible new horrors. Yeah, it was just uh, earlier today, um, somebody brought up the uh, Nikola Tesla quote that you, you may live to see man-made horrors beyond your comprehension. It seems truer every day. Um, hmm, so the question, what is the question here? Do you see the unfolding of 21st century insanity? Um, yeah. But, you know, keep in mind, uh, God is dead means that the Christian God has become unworthy of belief. So it's a sort of a Western problem. That doesn't mean that it couldn't, that other people might not experience the same problem in perhaps a different form. 
But for example, I don't think like China is experiencing like a God of God is dead type um, crisis of conscience the way that we are, right? Like China smashed all their gods during the the <laughs> communist revolution. Now you know they've allowed you know there's Buddhism and uh, Taoism have come back a little bit from how repressed they were in the past. But in any case. And I'm I'm just sort of saying it's not necessarily that the whole 21st century is insane. I think we have a, a, a very specific set of cultural and, and civilizational problems, both on the individual, like nation state level and in the Western world as a whole. And yeah, I think a lot of it can be sourced to the fact. I mean, so the death of God is one way to look at it. Um, I just put it into a bit since we were already just talking about that, I'll just put it into more like contemporary terms, the way I would talk about it. There's a lack of consensus of what the sacred value structure is. We can't agree fundamentally, like in the case of America, of what on what America is. I think I've said this in the podcast before in an untimely reflections. Um, and so there are now there's now competition to hammer out a new table of values and um that that's not insanity exactly but i think maybe in all in the interregnum that perhaps we're in um or something approaching that um there's always a little bit of insanity and craziness um i mean but yeah i mean also just on a physiological level I mean, we have some of the highest rates of anxiety and depression. Um, and I could also give my reasons why I think just politically we're in such a malaise. I mean, uh, but I don't know. I don't know if that would be too particularly relevant to Nietzsche. So I'll, I'll abstain for now. Um, I've talked about it before, and I'm sure I'll talk about it again. Um, but I guess just to say briefly, some of the things we talked about with Professor Mueller, you know, the commodification of everything, which involves to some extent the international capitalist system, um, you know, um, not a Marxist or anything like that, but um, I, I think capitalism has evolved into something that doesn't exactly resemble what Adam Smith was writing about. Oh God, the dog, the, I don't know if this is coming through in the recording, the neighbor's dog is howling. Um, I think some sirens, ambulances drove by, and he's he or she uh, is just howling away. Anyway, so maybe you'll hear a dog in the recording. It's just insanity. Um, okay, so this person, Craig Smith, wrote quite a bit. Okay, so he must have... Okay. That's right. Okay, so I'll just read it. Uh, I started to read Dr. Faustus by Thomas Mann the other week. The introductory essay talked about the character of Adrian Leverkuhn, modeled in part on Nietzsche, as representing the sense of German manifest destiny that so much German culture could be said to be fashioned around the symphonies of Beethoven and his reaction to Napoleon, the war march bass lines of Hayden, Wagner's violent myth-making through the philosophical development of the country, Kant, Hegel with his trajectory of historical becoming, of course Nietzsche and his embracing of the will to power. So much of the romantic era that you mentioned in the most recent podcast, that sense of peak and mountain, Caspar David Friedrich, the poems of Rilke, 
uh, Creation's Favorite Ones, Mountain Chains, Ridges Reddened by Dawns of All Origin. That was, he's quoting from Rilke there, the questioner is. But, and then he writes, uh, And the question raised in the essay and considered by man in the novel is whether the realization of war as the drunk chaotic finale to this crescendo of power was always going to be the result of this line of culture. Not to perpetuate the old slander against Nietzsche, of course, by linking him to the criminals of World War II, or Heidegger for that matter, but rather to think about Dionysus and the world's power, and to consider whether some trajectories towards violence are inherent in Nietzsche's thought. Was Nietzsche's conception of the feeling of power and overcoming purely to find release within art, within the alchemy that turns suffering into joy, by shouting I at the heart of the world, or was he part of a thread of German culture that might be said to build to rise towards a heralding of angelic choir roaring at the sky, decimating the fabric of the world, casting towards annihilation. Eternal recurrence, a cycle of birth, a cry into rising like a rocket to entropic explosion in the sky before doing it all again. It's not my personal use for Nietzsche. For me, his writing is primarily an inspiration for overcoming comfortable forms of weakness. But then I do wonder sometimes what his ethical response to some opportunities for violence may have been. I don't want to mischaracterize German Romantic era culture either as being born from and into war and madness, all storm and untrang, but hopefully the sentiment is palatable. Interested in your thoughts. Okay, so the general, that's kind of why I had to read that whole thing because it is very long, but it is, I did kind of have to read the whole thing to kind of get, because he really, he's only asking one question here, right? Uh, the question is, does, philosoph- does Nietzsche's philosophy lend itself to actual violence in the world? Um, like an actual admiration for, towards violence or approval of violence? Or is it uh, purely defined release within art? Is it artistic violence? Um, as he says, you know, the physical violence is not his use for Nietzsche. His writing is an inspiration for overcoming forms of comfortable forms of weakness. So which one is that? I mean, is that the artistic violence? Um, I mean, to the extent you believe in the Apollinean vision of the self, right? Where the self is a work of, a work of art that you create the self, your self image, right? Um, but that's funny because what Nietzsche talks about in Genealogy of Morality, where he's talking about how civilizations are founded, um, it's a great whole section, and I forget exactly where it is, but where he's basically saying, sort of what we were talking about earlier, he says, all the founders of civilization are, are barbarians, all the fathers of civilization, or however he puts it, and that wherever, it's a great passage because he, he, he lists, um, which for rebutting the people who would link him to the criminals of World War II, right? Because it's not a, like a racial thing. Like he he talks about like whether they were the Japanese samurai or the Vikings or the the Aryans were eaten. He's not talking. He's talking about Persians, right? People from the Caucasus Mountains, um, old Zoroastrian Persians. Where we get Zoroaster, Zarathustra, um, and I think he mentions Indians, uh, Celts, Gauls, Romans, Greeks. I'm not exactly sure all the people he lists, but he basically says. All these great civilizations were founded, um, but the people who founded them, they founded it through the artist's violence. And he talks about how they would, these were, that the, the early nobilities, the, they were warrior, uh, 
fighting aristocracies, warrior aristocracies. These are who founded societies. Um, that the early these are the, the character of the earliest aristocracies. And he talks about them, you know, um, emerging from orgies of bloodshed with a completely clean conscience. But what the term he uses is how they carved out a society through the artist's violence. So that is him. What's interesting is by talking about Nietzsche's conception of the feeling of power and overcoming, about finding a release through art, you're almost taking the act of physical violence and applying that as a metaphor to art, right? The self as self-image as a work of art that you're shaping and taking taking the image of doing that through violence, through destroying the old self and creating something new. It's very Dionysian in a way too, um, which by the way, um, you know, there's always a bit of Dionysus and Apollo and a bit of Apollo and Dionysus. Um, it's very yin-yang in that way. But, um, but uh, yeah, so on the other hand, Nietzsche is, by calling it the artist's violence, that these barbaric warrior nobilities used to found cultures, he's taking the, using art as a metaphor and applying that to what it is to create a society, which is he's acknowledging a violent, destructive, um, terrible, terrifying act. Um, and there's even, there's even a part, I think a little later in genealogy where he sort of deny, it might actually be in the same section where he denies that, um, it's where you see it's sort of part of the turn in Nietzsche we talked about in the recent episode, um, about a pessimism of strength and Dionysus versus the crucified of the shift from seeing the higher man as somebody who cast out the passions to the, the passionate man who is the master of his passions. Um, and that's how he sees these early warrior aristocracies. And he basically denies, you know, all the, all this that we've called enculturation, like the domestication and the taming of these warrior aristocracies through morality. He basically is like, that's not culture. <laughs> the, the true culture was what these uh, barbarians had. And so that's, uh, it's things like that where it have led some Nietzsche interpreters to see him as somebody who supports barbar bar barbarism, basically, even though at other times he, he very clearly takes a condemnatory view of quote-unquote barbarism um but i still haven't really answered your, your your question and i think if we're being if we're being at all honest uh i think we know it's both right i mean nietzsche again tends to write descriptively and not so much normatively and he is so he's not saying this as some sort of moral declaration of how you should behave but he, I think he does hold that, um, you know, what we might call a realist view of geopolitics, that conflict is inevitable, inevitable, it's going to arise. Stability is the exception. Chaos and warfare is the rule. Um, there's this group level selection where the strong groups are going to survive and we also see this pattern over time where the victors eventually become complacent over however many generations and they get overcome 
by people who are out on the frontier. And this happens over and over again. Um, and so there is a praise he thinks we need to reintegrate a healthy praise for, quite frankly, like war and warriors. I mean, in a broad sense, you could say towards physicality and the body and for confrontation and even physical confrontation for the sake of what you love or your deepest principles. Most people would agree with that, right? But I think he's, I think Nietzsche, as always, as a as a critic or, or a cynic about society, he, he doesn't think that we really honestly are willing to acknowledge the reality that any all the all the rights that we talk about or any morality that you have uh, any principle you hold only matters to the degree you're willing to back it by force and that this fantasy that we all just can you can logically compel somebody to treat you as a human being in the kantian sense right you can't uh dehumanize me that's logically incoherent how, do, how does that work out, you know? You know, like, from just a realist angle, Nietzsche's right. You have to have respect for force and the realities of power. And, like, the, the, if you forget that, you lose, you go extinct. And that's the story of humanity, is that ultimately we're not, as we've been saying, right, in some of the recent episodes, in many respects... We simply consciously do what the animals do through blindly willing. And we still ultimately are in the grip of forgetting because we always forget that over our many generations. That, um, yeah, we always unlearn the lesson. So uh, the respect for the realities of power, that entails a respect and, yes, even an admiration for strength. And But... I think then we have to look at the other element that you brought up of the art of self-creation or self-reflection or self-transformation, self-overcoming, however you want to look at it. Um, that element is also there in Nietzsche. And I mean, like, the, I guess it's just important to look at, so what is that? That's virtue, right? In some sense. It's, it's, Nietzsche does not just simply hold might is the be all end all, but a lot of what he's trying to do is turn our attention to that because we don't want to look at it. It's, it's, he's trying to make us honest again and take an honest look at, at the reality of power and power relationships and what, you know, that, um, you know, we're not governed by rights. We're not governed by a piece of paper. We're not governed by like logical agreement or by popular sovereignty. It's like power is what governs, right? And so you need to have respect for power. And then therefore we take that seriously. It's like the kind of person who wields power, like it's healthy to have respect for that. But then if you just take that as the only thing, right? And you ignore everything else Nietzsche says, like, yeah, that produces something pathological. Then you're just like, oh, I just like, it just might makes right, right? Might makes right, maybe this is a good way of putting it. Might makes right is not a good explanation of Nietzsche. 
It's more that rights are made by might, right? That you, you, there, the your your uh, freedoms and rights are the solution. That the reality is, there's either the comfort that you have when your your will is not impeded, when you don't have power brought to bear against you to curtail what you can and can't do, and then you. And then, so there's either that situation or there's a situation where force or violence is used against you, uh, or, or sorry, there, you, you either, you're either free from being compelled by force or you have force used against you, right? That, that, that's, that's the actual situation. And if force is being used against you, the thing that you need to counter it is force. It's not, um, you know, neat. This is a summary of Nietzsche's position. It's not by invoking your rights. And this is what he talks about in human all too human, where he, um, he invokes the, what he calls the terrible Melian dialogue. Um, that's the Athenians talking to the Melians in, uh, Thucydides. It's a very famous exchange because, um, the Melians are constantly appealing to their rights and the talking about how it's unjust what the Athenians are doing by threatening to invade them and conquer them. And, um, the Athenian, the famous line that the Athenian ambassador says is, uh, no, 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 no. Like all those rules are for equals, people of equal power. You're far weaker than we are. And, um, when the Melians further protest, the Athenians say the weak, uh, the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. So to some extent, that's the reality, right? Um, but notice, within, between individuals of equal strength, you can have these agreements. And that's how you get concepts of things like having a right to something or having some sort of mutual understanding. That's what Nietzsche thinks that's based on, just this, these pacts between the noble class. But anyway, that's kind of escaping from, and we're kind of going away from the initial question at this point. So I'll just wrap it up and put a cork in it. Yes, the idea of the respect for physical force and power, like, and how that that's what makes morality matter, right, is actually what you're willing to do and back up with force and everything else is, is sort of just cheap talk, right. But the idea that Nietzsche just respected, uh, power in the vulgar sense, right, in and of itself. No, he also required, I mean, what he really required to respect somebody is power in the sense you're talking about in the artistic sense, particularly artistic sense of self-creation, which is in a sense virtue. And so those are it's two very different forms of morality, right? There's this sort of like deontological rules-based ethics, which I guess I've been stressing throughout this episode, should not be applied to Nietzsche. And a lot of the pitfalls people make is I think when they apply that to Nietzsche but then Nietzsche does have um and so that's absent that's what I'm saying right he's not he's not coming in to have just, he doesn't have any rules-based morality to oppose the use of force and he thinks in, in general that's a form of morality as anti-nature morality takes up against power um, it's, it's this miscalculation, it's a mistake, but where he does have morality is in the sense, the Greek sense of virtue ethics, which is involved with power over oneself. Fundamentally, it's about cultivating power over oneself, the power to overcome oneself and one's blind impulses. Um, 
but I mean, just more than that to, to, um, I don't know, to be, to hold in your mind an image of the kind of person that you would want to strive to emulate. And so, uh, and that relates us back to the Ubermensch because that's the image that he's, um, offering is a general, it's almost an archetype for the philosophers he sees coming or that he hopes are coming. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, 43 minutes. Okay. So that's, that's long. That's long enough. I actually went longer than I thought I would go, but hopefully this was all coherent enough. Um, I'll listen back to it before I release it just to make sure. Okay. Um, uh, goodbye, everybody. Signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.